Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number 6. Well, today's message, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. And the message is going to be out of Acts chapter number 8. But for sake of time, there's a lot of things that I'm not going to take the time to just read all these verses. And so I'm going to start out with Acts 6, set the tone, where we're at, who we're talking about. And then I'm going to spend some time in the introduction just explaining what happens in chapter 7 before we take a look at Acts chapter number 8. So starting out with Acts chapter number 6, we'll begin in verse number 8. It says, and Stephen, if you'll recall, Stephen was one of those uh, seven chosen deacons that we preached about last week. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. Boy, there is a lot of Libertine churches in America today. Liberal. This idea, this concept that being saved by the grace of God means that I can just live my life any old way that I choose and God will still be perfectly fine with me. The Libertines, that's the mentality that says, come as you are and leave as you came. Hey, I have a come-as-you-are attitude. I think that, hey, people ought to come to God, come to church, however you are. But listen, don't stay that way. How many times have I heard people say, well, that's just the way that I am. Well, stop being that way. I I don't want to be the way that I am. I, I hate the way that I am most of the time. But I like the way that Jesus is. And I sure would like to be more like Him and less like me. So the synagogue of the Libertines, they um, they arose when Stephen was preaching, and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia disputing with Stephen. So they're arguing with him. I don't know if they're interrupting his sermon. I don't know if this happened before or maybe there was a break in between points. I, I don't know exactly how this panned out. But you have a bunch of Jews that are disputing with Stephen. And watch this. In verse 10 it says, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Boy, that's some, that's a tremendous statement. The wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spake. It doesn't say that Stephen was the best arguer. Doesn't say that he was the best debater. Hey, I've seen people win an argument that were dead wrong, but they won because they were good at arguing. Maybe they had that forceful personality. Stephen is not overpowering them with his personality. He's overpowering them with the presence of God in his life. It says, verse 11, when they suborned men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. 
The message this morning, and I'll be able to clarify and explain it here in just a moment, but the message is entitled, Leave the Results to God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together today. Father, it's good to be in your house. Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in our lives. And Lord, I want to thank you personally and publicly for saving my soul. Oh, Lord, what a joy it is to know you as Savior, to know that I'm on my way to heaven, to know that all my sins have been forgiven, to know that I'm not going through this life alone, that I've got a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I thank you for this congregation People who have taken time out of their day, time out of their week to come and to worship you and to hear the word of God. And I pray, Father, that we'd not be disappointed by what we hear today. But I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and lead us and guide us and help us with the needs that we have. Father, I don't know the need of every heart here today, but I know that you do. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide and take and use our words today to be a help to each and every one. If someone here today doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that they'd get saved before they leave this building. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter number 7, we find Stephen's message, his sermon in response to their questioning. They had made some false accusations. They had said some things that were somewhat true of what Stephen had said, but they were twisting them. And they were taking his words and trying to use them against him, trying to win the argument, trying to win the debate. And as they asked him, are these things so, they looked at him and waited for an answer. And that the Bible says that they saw his face as it, as if it were the face of an angel. Obviously, the character and spirit of Stephen, he had God on him. And he begins to preach a message that I am certain that he didn't pull out a homiletical outline or a set of notes. I don't think that Acts chapter number 7 is a message in which Stephen had prepared this sermon. I think that this is a message that just simply is in Stephen's heart. And he begins to preach as they've accused him of changing the laws of Moses and how that this place is going to be destroyed by Jesus. He begins to preach and throughout the entire Acts chapter number seven, he rehearses their entire history. He starts with Abraham and he moves on to Isaac and then he moves on to Jacob and then he mentions the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob and then he focuses on one of those particular patriarchs by the name of Joseph. And we know Joseph as the little boy with the coat of many colors who was sold into slavery by his brethren. And how that he was bought by Potiphar. And how that he was falsely accused and thrown in the dungeon. But God was with him throughout all of that. And raised him up and he became the second ruler of the world. And then he moves on and starts talking about Moses, how that God raised up Moses to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt after a Pharaoh rose up that didn't know Joseph, that didn't know that history and began to persecute and enslave the children of Israel. Moses had the hand of God upon him and brought the children of Israel out 
through the Red Sea, through signs and wonders and miracles and how that God was blessing His people and delivering them and brought them out into the wilderness. Then he talked about how that eventually they became a nation and God brought them out of the wilderness and into the land and God raised up some kings. He raised up David and then David's son Solomon who built a temple, a place where the worship of the Old Testament could take place. He lays out all of that history. But if you'll look with me at verse 51 of Acts chapter number 7, we see that him telling this history, when he comes down to the invitation time, the conclusion if you will, he comes right out, cuts to the chase and says in verse 51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Now, to become a Jew, a Jewish boy had to be physically circumcised in order to be considered part of the nation of Israel, in order to be considered a Jew. They didn't have any problem with that. In name, in identity, they were Jews. But Stephen says, you've got something wrong in your heart. It's not the outward things that we do that make us right with God, Stephen says. It's what's in our heart. And you're stiff-necked and you've got a heart problem. And he says, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you, so do ye, ye. Verse 52, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. You know what he's doing. He's preaching Jesus Christ. And he's saying that the prophets that told about Jesus, your fathers persecuted them. And now Jesus shows up, the Messiah, and he says that you have slain him. You've betrayed. And he says in verse 53, who have received the law by the disposition disposition of angels and have not kept it. In essence, Stephen's saying you're a bunch of religious hypocrites that outwardly you think that you're part of the right church, you think that you have the right identity, you think that you're right, but your heart is no different than those who have slain the prophets of God and you killed your Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I won't take the time to read it, but in verse 54 through verse number 60, we find that when he gave the conclusion of his sermon, when he told them what they needed to hear, the Bible says that they were cut to the heart. All of them. Now, I've preached to a congregation this size before, and I've noticed that some people are soaking it up while other people are disinterested, while other people... I've preached truths before where I've seen people literally get up in anger and head out that door and leave saying, I don't want to hear this nonsense anymore. Stephen didn't have a mixed response. He had 100% of this crowd. They were cut to the heart. They were affected by his sermon. But instead of responding, they reacted. And they reacted in anger. And they picked up stones and they began to stone Stephen to death. And Stephen, 
who had just recently been selected as a deacon, someone to help out and to be part of God's program, one of his first sermons that he ever preached, he ended up becoming the first martyr, someone who died for doing the right thing. And so I want to, I don't know what was going on in Stephen's mind. I know that we read here that he saw Jesus. They saw him as an angel. He kept his cool. He wasn't angry. He was very Christ-like in his spirit. He had God upon him, but I don't know what he felt. I don't know if God miraculously blocked his mind from feeling the pain as each one of those rocks. And by the way, a stoning in the Scripture in Christ's day was not throwing a bunch of little rocks at a person. It was literally hand-sized rocks the size of a softball, no doubt jagged edges. I'm not trying to be gruesome, but this is the first martyr who died for Christ. We ought to at least understand what he went through for the Lord. And as they began to throw those rocks, I don't know if the first one that hit him, how many hit him, I don't know if he felt the pain. I I would think that probably he did. But as he went through all of that, he still, he said, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. Kind of reminds me of the Savior that he was preaching about when Jesus died on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You think about this sermon that he preached. You think about the end of that sermon. He ultimately dies because he preached it. He hadn't committed any crimes. He hadn't stolen from anyone. He wasn't a bad person. He simply spoke some words out of his mouth and he incited such anger and vindictive behavior that they said, this man isn't worthy to live. We're going to kill him and we're going to kill him right now. And I asked the question, what good could possibly come from this tragedy? If this was in the news, if this something like this were to happen, the world would see this like, wow, how could anything good come from that? But I want to show you some things on how that God is a God that can take bad things in our life, bad things in the lives of others, and He can make some good things come from human tragedy. What good could possibly come from this tragedy? Well, number one, number one, we find the conviction of Saul of Tarsus. When I say conviction, I'm not talking about that he got convicted legally in a court of law. I'm talking about a conviction that began to take place in his heart and in his conscience. If you look with me at Acts chapter number eight and verse number one, it says that Saul was consenting unto his death, unto Stephen's death. He's watching. He didn't throw a stone. He didn't participate uh, in action, but he was consenting. He was standing on the sideline and he was cheering it on. Yeah, get him. Get Oh, no, you missed. Come on, throw, throw that rock more accurate. And he's consenting and giving his approval and cheering on the murderers. In fact, as... They're murdering him. 
they, they, they have coats on and they're not able to throw very accurately. So they take their coats off and Paul's like, here, let me hold your coats. So Saul was part of that. It says at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now, this is what we see outwardly. I mean, he pours it on. He he jumps on board of the bandwagon of persecuting and killing Christians. But I read in Acts 26 and verse number 14, when Paul later, after he's converted, he gives this testimony. It says, and when we were all fallen to the earth, Paul says, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, it's interesting. He's not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting Christians. But Jesus is taking that personal. Now, I don't know about you, but that tells me something about what my Savior thinks of me if I belong to Him. Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? The Lord says, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Saul's kicking. Saul's wreaking havoc. But something is going on in his heart. And it is that pricking of his conscience. That that little intense pain that the Holy Spirit is producing. That Saul can't seem to shake it. Reminds me of Psalm 73 and verse 21 where David says, Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. We know what reins are. They are on a horse and they're used to control the will of the horse. Well, Paul says my heart was grieved. Or excuse me, David does. And he's making a connection between our heart and our will. He says that was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. I believe that Saul of Tarsus, the Holy Spirit, did something in his heart when Saul looked at the face of Stephen and saw how that he responded to their venomous murder and all of their persecution and hatred. Father, forgive them. I see Jesus. There was something that was real about Stephen that Saul couldn't shake. Saul had zeal. Saul had passion. Saul had energy. And Saul was doing everything he could, thinking that he's serving God. But he didn't have in his heart what Stephen had. And he knew it. You know, sometimes we think that we can justify how we live our life. We can think that we're okay, but down deep we really know that we don't have what others have. We don't have the peace of God. We don't, God's not real to us. The best that we can do is just outwardly go through the motions. That's what Saul was doing. But inwardly, he was under conviction. How did Saul respond to that conviction? Well, he began to pour on the persecution. And by the way, that kind of a response is very common. 
How often have I witnessed to people who were of a false religion? They weren't real dedicated in their religion. You show them the truth of the gospel and they recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is contrary to the religion that they believe in and they, they start feeling that tug and they start kind of that shock that, wow, now I've got to do something with that. And the way that they react is they just go back to their church and they think if I just get more devout, if I just get more involved, then I can ease my conscience and I won't feel this way. That's exactly what was going on with Saul. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. Some people, when they hear the truth, they react in a negative way. Acts 26, verse number 11, Paul once again giving his testimony, he says, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. How often have I preached the Word of God? No matter how you preach it, you can be sweet and kind and soft. I think, I try. Doesn't always work out that way. But sometimes no matter how you present the truth, there are certain things that, and if it, uh, if it rubs somebody the wrong way, they might just get mad at the messenger. I've had people get mad at me for preaching certain messages. And, and, you know, you don't want to get caught up in being defensive, but sometimes I just think, well, what, what do they want me to do? It's in the Bible. I'm a preacher. Aren't I supposed to preach the Bible? Well, everything except for that preacher, because I don't want to change that in my life. Old time preacher was preaching one time and somebody yelled out. He said, preacher, you're rubbing my fur the wrong way. Preacher said, turn the cat around. You know, what What are you supposed to do? You know, I will say this. I said it before, but I'll repeat it. If my personality hurts or offends you, for that I apologize. I know it's not my intent. It's not something that I want to do. I know from time to time it happens. You stand up behind a box and talk to people long enough, frequently enough, you're going to say something. Your personality is going to come out. Uh, something's going to come out wrong and you meant it one way and you said it another and so forth and inadvertently you end up hurting people. If my personality does that, for that I apologize. I have no defense of that. But if the truth offends, for that I make no apology. Because the, if it's true, then it's true. We don't want to tell lies. We don't want to leave things out. If God said it, then I'm not going to be disloyal to God and omit that or try to explain it away so that it doesn't hurt your feelings. Stephen didn't spare their feelings. He cared more about their soul than he cared about what they thought of him. And you know, that's what a good man of God will always be. He'll be a man that cares more about you than what he cares about what you think of him. That's what real men of God are like. And so Paul was exceeding mad against them. He began to persecute them. Anger and opposition are better than apathy. Hey, I'd rather somebody get mad at the truth than to just sit there like, okay, who cares? No big deal. 
I joke about this. Uh, some of you remember a number of years ago, I think it's been quite a few years back, over uh, across from Cracker Barrel, there used to be a Hooters restaurant. And uh, we got the bright idea. We had some of our signs from street ministry. One said, talked about uh, lust and pornography um, and so forth. Some of them were some pretty salty signs that deal with that kind of thing. And so we went and stood on the street right there at the entrance and we held those signs right in front of it. Thinking that, hey, we're going to make some people mad. We've had times where we took the sign that we have that says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise, Proverbs 20, verse 1. And we've stood in front of the liquor store downtown Statesville, thinking, oh, we're going to be making some people mad. But you know what I found? Both of those incidents, people just drive by. We had people say they appreciate it as they went into the store to buy liquor. What up with that? But I found that it's like, you know, we're going to we're going to stir the pot just a little bit. And we found that the pot just doesn't seem to stir, you know, okay, yeah, whatever. I'd rather somebody get mad than to be just totally apathetic, like uh, who cares? No big deal. You know, what's kind of neat, though, is that. I don't even know if very many people noticed us standing out in front of Hooters. But a few months later, it closed down. We had nothing to do with it. But I guarantee you that, hey, I know some preachers that would have reported that on faith. Hey, you know, we started, we did this and, you know, three weeks later they shut down. (laughs) Uh, That's not the way that it was. But if somebody hears the truth and they get upset, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It means that maybe they were pricked in their heart and they're just reacting just like the Apostle Paul. So what good could possibly come from this tragedy of Stephen's death? Well, the conviction of Saul of Tarsus. Secondly, we find in verses 4 through 8, we find the scattering of the disciples. It says in verse 4, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So Paul is convicted at Stephen's preaching and his stoning. Saul pours on the heat and begins persecuting Christians. And because of that heated persecution, the Christians in Jerusalem have to start scattering and getting away from the persecution. They begin preaching the Word in other cities. Then we find in verse number 5, then Philip went down. Philip's one of the other deacons, by the way. He went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame and were healed. And I like verse number 8. It says, and there was great joy in that city. Wow, they get scattered. And Philip goes into the city of Samaria. 
Now we know that Samaria is not the place that the Jews were very fond of. In fact, Jesus got criticized for even talking to that woman at the well in Samaria. The Jews had no dealings with them, but when the disciples got scattered, Philip went down to that city and he began to preach Christ to them. Now, the response, you know, I think about this. Let me, I'm almost getting ahead of myself. When you think about this, the church at Jerusalem had a wonderful thing going. We, we've been talking about that the last few weeks. And they're all of one accord. They're all sold out to God. There's just great camaraderie and unity and Christ is being preached and it's so wonderful. But the reality of it is fellowship is a wonderful thing. Fellowship is a very helpful thing. But it's not our primary goal or purpose. God saved us and left us here so that we can tell other people about Jesus Christ. This city in Samaria, when Philip goes down and preaches Christ to him, they almost entirely respond to his preaching. Not like they did with Stephen, but the city becomes saved. They become, they, they respond, they believe, and the whole city is filled with joy. You got a revival going on. A work of God, a supernatural act. And you know what I say to that? I say this, keep on preaching, keep on preaching, keep on preaching. Some will reject it, but praise the Lord, some will receive it. And so just keep on preaching. What good could possibly come out of the stoning of Stephen? Well, something sure, something good for the city of Samaria I don't know how many thousands or hundreds were there, but for every single one of them, they got in, they got born again, and they might not have ever heard in their lifetime if the apostles had not been scattered because of this persecution. Number three. Number three is not necessarily a result, but I think that it's something that needs to be mentioned, and that is simply this. When God works... Be very, very cautious. I've noticed this in my Christian life. Whenever God does something, there's always going to be some kind of a counter that Satan or the world is going to throw at God's people. I've seen when God starts saving souls, that if somebody's got a button, a button the devil will push it. I've seen in the midst of God doing great things and all of a sudden this family and this family in the church are squabbling over something that's just petty and shouldn't even be a big deal, but now all of a sudden it becomes a big deal. I've seen all kinds of things in my life and ministry where when God's doing something wonderful, you watch out, the devil's going to come in the back door. Or he's going to come in and he's going to start imitating what God is already doing. I read about the Welch Revival. And in the Welch Revival, there was some wonderful things going on. People were getting saved. Saved people were getting right. People who had sin in their life. And they'd get together for a meeting. They began to sing and they'd pray and there'd be the preaching of God's Word. And literally, people who were saved, who had sin in their life, would come to the altar or they'd begin to weep and they'd start confessing their sins. 
publicly. Now, I'm not saying that that's always the right thing to do. There's, listen, the Bible says we're supposed to confess our sins to God. We can confess our faults to one another. But in this particular thing, there was so much pretension, pretending going on that it was a good thing for these Christian leaders to be open and say, you know what, I've been living a double life. But God's convicted me and I've gotten right with God. And boy, the Holy Spirit is just blessing and wonderful things are happening. And the next thing you know, in one of their meetings, you had somebody stand up and they weren't confessing their sins. They were confessing the sins of somebody that was sitting over here. And they didn't even know that person. Sins that that person sitting there going, nobody knows about this. There's no way that anybody could know about this, and this person over here knows about it. How'd that person find out about it? The devil. The devil is supernatural, by the way. And those kind of things can and do happen. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There is a spirit world, and we are engaged in battle. And when the Lord starts gaining some victory and starts gaining the ground, hey, don't think that Satan's just going to go, Oh, okay, you can have it. No, he's going to fight with everything he can to keep his territory. That's why it's so hard for us to gain territory that we've given up to him. He doesn't just roll over and play dead. He fights. And that's why it's so important that as Christians, we fight the good fight of faith. We submit ourselves to God. The Bible says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Before we can ever resist the devil, we have to first submit ourselves to God. Look with me here in verse number 9. It says, there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. He's pretty intrigued by these miracles and signs. He's not necessarily infatuated with this Jesus person, but he's really infatuated with these miracles and signs. Verse number 14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Keep in mind, a little time out here, we've got some transition going on throughout the book of Acts. Be real careful on how you uh, set up your doctrinal stand based on Acts, because there's a lot of moving parts as we go through the book of Acts. By the time we get to the end of it, the Apostle Paul, whom God has explained in detail, a lot of this transition, it's pretty much all settled, doctrinally speaking. 
And so they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. Verse 18, when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Simon here jumped on the bandwagon of Christianity. He's not necessarily an insincere pretender. He's sincere, but his heart and motives for turning to Christ are far from right. He liked the bandwagon. He liked the miracles. And he thought, wow, this is one, uh, you know, I can just kind of change my name here, but still kind of be the same Simon that I've always been. Instead of getting my power from sorcery and from Satan, now I find that here's another God that's more powerful, so I'll just add him to my spiritual manipulating toolbox. Simon still wants glory. He still wants power and control. And he'll get it any way he can. I got some money here. By the way, you know Simon probably had a lot of money because he had been bewitching them through his sorcery. They've been having to pay him money in order to get answers and to foretell the future and so forth. And he'd had some power. And because of that, he had the money. It reminds me of Jeremiah 5, verse 31, where Jeremiah said, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means. How many ministries do we have today where a ministry has means? Maybe they've got finances, they've got a nice building and nice graphics and lots of advertising and where they got money that they can send out nice brochures and invite people. They can have a nice light show and even, I, I never will get this one, they can even have like that smoke while they're preaching. I don't get that, but I guess some people, it's kind of like the rest of that verse. It says, and my people, uh, let me find it here. Uh, it says, and my people love to have it so. The priests are bearing rule by their means. They're preaching, they're manipulating. They don't have the power of God. They don't have the true gospel of Christ, but they have means and methods that they can get a result. How many ministries have I ever heard of that actually have people trained that at the invitation time, they come forward to the altar immediately? And that creates this momentum so that people that are thinking about coming to the altar just think, well, there's other people doing it, so I'll do that as well. Now, that might, no doubt, that might encourage someone 
and make it a little bit easier for them to come, and that's fine. But the problem is, is for everyone that sincerely, that encourages them to move and to make a decision, how many just go with the flow and follow the bandwagon, but nothing changes in their heart. My people love to have it so. Why? Because we can report and say, praise the Lord, we had we had 17 people come forward and get saved in our service. Now, we'll never see them again. But at least we can pat ourselves on the back and say, isn't that wonderful? The apostles weren't interested in that. That was the heart of Simon. He wasn't a pretender. It's just that he didn't have the right motives. Now, Simon's heart betrays himself when Peter confronts him. Peter confronts him, says, your money perish with you. Said, you got, you got no, no part nor lot in this matter. Thy heart is not right with God. Repent therefore, for I perceive thou art in the gall of bitterness. But notice verse number 24, it says, then answered Simon and said, pray ye to the Lord for me. You know what Simon's saying? Peter told him, you need to pray and get this right with God. And Simon says, you pray for me. Simon's heart betrayed him. He's professing himself to be a believer in Jesus, but he doesn't know God personally. He doesn't have any clue or any concept. He's thinking that I've got to get somebody else to pray for me. And you know what's really interesting is that the Holy Spirit in the Bible... Let me look at this. He says in verse 24, Pray ye that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Notice how verse number 25 just moves right along. We have no conclusion. We don't know what happened to Simon. The Holy Spirit just moves right along. It seems like Peter ignores that request. Do you know why that is? Is because Peter knew that, hey, Simon's already heard what he needs to hear. He already knows what he needs to do. We can't do it for him. The ball is in your court, Simon. And so, we're just going to go on preaching and try to help the people that we can help. I don't know what happened to Simon. I would think that if Simon would have repented, that the Holy Spirit would have given us some record of that. But I tend to think that he remained in that gall of bitterness and never ever got his heart right with God. He doesn't know God. He doesn't want to repent. He doesn't want to change. He just simply wants to be delivered from the consequences that the man of God told him would happen to him. Pray ye, he says, that none of these things happen to me. He didn't say, Peter, pray for me that I'll get my heart right with God. He says, pray for me that none of this happens to me. You know what you really have here is Simon was kind of the first good Roman Catholic. He's trying to pay something to get something spiritual. That's the indulgences. He's trying to get somebody else to pray for him. The saints, the priest, and so forth. He's doing all of these things. But listen, none of that can save the soul. Listen, getting right with God and getting saved is not this process by which, okay, I go and I, 
I commit all these sins and then I go and confess them. Now I got a clean slate. Now I can go out and do it again and feel better about it. That, you know what you have there? That's a description of someone who is still in the bond of iniquity, just like Simon was. Lastly, number four, what good can come out of Stephen's death? We find the ministry of Philip the evangelist. We've already read about him in Samaria. What a wonderful thing. He goes in and preaches and wonderful revival takes place. But in verse 26 through verse number 40, we find that Philip leads a man to the Lord, an Ethiopian, a man who was an eunuch. We find here in chapter 8, verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. Samaria is north of Jerusalem. Gaza is south. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to go down there, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He's returning, sitting in his chariot. Let me just kind of briefly describe what's going on. He's got his scripture. He's sitting in his, his wagon. A chariot wasn't always like a Ben-Hur, you know, battle type chariot. He's in his wagon, if you will. He's reading out of Isaiah chapter 53. The Holy Spirit tells Philip, verse 29, to go near and join thyself to this chariot. Philip runs thither. He must, either this chariot's moving pretty slow or Philip's running pretty fast. He runs toward the chariot and he says to this Ethiopian, he says, understandest thou what thou readest? The man says, how can I except some man should guide me? So Philip takes that same passage, Isaiah 53, and he starts preaching to him the Lord Jesus Christ. This Ethiopian eunuch, says, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. By the way, baptism is something that takes place after salvation. It doesn't take place for salvation. It doesn't take place before salvation. It takes place after Salvation. That Ethiopian eunuch says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. According to the Scripture, that very moment in faith that the Ethiopian believed and received Jesus Christ, he got born again right that very moment. Before his foot ever touched that water, he was a saved uh, Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to Ethiopia. He got saved and Philip took him down into the water and baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful story. In Acts 21, in verse number 8, it says, And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. We don't find anyone in the Scripture that's referred to as the Evangelist other than this one of the first deacons, by the name of Philip, God calls him an evangelist. He was a teller of good news. Now, I'm a pastor. Um, I don't, 
I don't, God hasn't called me to be an evangelist. God told me in 2 Timothy chapter number 4 that I'm supposed to do the work of an evangelist. Every single preacher should also be doing the work of an evangelist, telling people about Jesus Christ. But Philip had this touch of God and he knew how to lead people to Jesus Christ. And we could just take a few minutes here and think about the nature of Philip's ministry. Well, first of all, he was led by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't led by an association. He wasn't just necessarily, it wasn't necessarily that he was being invited in for a meeting. He wasn't trying to book meetings. The Holy Spirit led him to places where God wanted him to preach. We find that he had some people skills. He went up beside this chariot and he knew how to ask that question. He said, do you understand what you're reading? And that Ethiopian invited him into his chariot. He had some people skills. How do I get people skills? Well, Philip cared about people. He cared about their souls. You want to have people skills, just start caring about people. It'll happen. Doesn't matter. You don't, you don't have to have this gifted Mr. Personality type persona. All you have to do is care about people. You can be quiet and shy. But if you care about people, people will care what you have to say. I think half the problem with our witnessing efforts today is we go and start blabbing our mouth and we haven't even shown anybody any care. We've never asked them any questions. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know anything about their life. We just have this attitude, here I am. Listen to what I have to say. Philip wasn't like that. Philip had some people skills. We find that he preached Jesus, not an agenda. I mean, he didn't have, he wasn't, he, he wasn't trying to tell this Ethiopian eunuch, you know, now let me warn you about those Jews in Jerusalem where you've just been. They stoned Stephen. He didn't even go there. The Bible says he preached to him Jesus. That's what we need to be, have more of is the preaching of Jesus. He didn't cut corners to get converts. He made sure when that Ethiopian eunuch wanted to be baptized, he said, if thou believest with all thine heart. He didn't make it easy. He made it as difficult as was reasonable because he didn't want to be doing the saving. He wanted to make sure that God was doing the saving. And another thing too is he didn't care about the size of the congregation or the class of the congregation. He didn't care what the color of their skin was. He didn't care if they were rich or poor, if they were important or insignificant. He didn't care wherever the Holy Spirit led him. He went and he preached Jesus. Hey, what good can come out of Stephen's death? Well, boy, a lot of good things came out of the ministry of Philip, and it can all be traced back to what God did as a result of Stephen's message. In conclusion, Stephen's death demonstrates some very valuable principles that we all need to remember. First of all, we need to remember that doing good doesn't guarantee an immediate good outcome. We all, it's frustrating when we do the right thing and a negative outcome happens. How many times have we tried to do the right thing only to get a face full of quills? Do the right thing just to be criticized. Sometimes we get misunderstood and so forth. And it can be very frustrating. It can be very discouraging when we get misunderstood. 
And a bad outcome is the immediate result of something good that we do. Secondly, we can learn that telling the needful truth is not always what people want to hear. This crowd in Jerusalem when Stephen's preaching, they seemed really attentive until it got personal. And then things really, really changed quickly. Number three, God's glory should always be our supreme motive. Not the results, not what we hope for, but God's glory. Philippians 1 and verse number 20 says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul understood that some good things can come out of his persecution and his death as long as Christ is magnified. And let me tell you something, Christ was magnified by Stephen's death. Number four, God does not waste our suffering. He doesn't waste it. Look at chapter 7 with me in verse number 56. Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Hey, there's something significant there. We read all through the Bible that when Jesus resurrected, He went to the third heaven and He sat down at the right hand of His Father. But here we see that Jesus is standing. God's not going to waste your suffering. When Stephen's being stoned, Jesus stands up. Now there's, I've heard a lot of potential prophetic implications from that. But all I know for sure is that God's not going to waste our suffering. God takes note when we do the right thing and suffer for it. Jesus, I wonder how many other martyrs that Jesus has literally stood at attention and to give His attention toward the stoning of one of His children or the persecution of one of His children. Psalm 56, verse number 8, David said, Thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? Our suffering, our grief. You know, the Bible says that God takes every one of our tears and puts them in His bottle. I forget about them, but God doesn't. Every single one of the griefs and the trials that we go through, God's writing them in His book and storing our tears in His bottle. Number five, we don't have to allow perceived failure to discourage us. Folks, God has a plan and a purpose for each of our lives. We don't always understand it. You know what? We don't always like it. I've had things that God has told me to do, places that God has led me to do to go that I didn't want to. But when I got there, I found out that God knew what He was doing. It wasn't what I wanted, but it was what God wanted. And everything always turns out okay. We can find so much contentment, so much fulfillment if we will just follow God's plan for our life. Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. 
God certainly worked Stephen's death together for good for a lot of people. And I'm sure that as Stephen, he was stoned and instantly he was in the presence of the Lord. He had no regrets. And perhaps maybe he knows that God blessed his message. Nobody got saved right then and there. But in the long term, many, many good things happened because Stephen was faithful in following the Lord. And one last final statement and we'll close. Brothers and sisters, keep on plowing, keep on sowing, keep on watering and weeding, keep on serving the Lord, stay focused on the principles and the process, and God will take care of the results. He knows how and He knows when. And He's a God that that we read about in Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I hope that the message of Stephen has been an encouragement to your heart to keep on going on for God, even when the short-term results don't seem to make sense. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for Stephen, Your first martyr, for his faithfulness to You, his boldness and courage and compassion to tell those Jews in Jerusalem, the truth, what they needed to hear. And I thank you, Lord, for all of the things that you took and used the scattering and the ministry of Philip and all the various things that you brought good things out of. And I pray that you'd help us to follow you and to let you take care of the results of all that we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Hymn number 306 is our invitation song. If God spoke to your heart, We invite you to come. Hymn number 306, The Altar's Open.